Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, the Slate editor Jessica Winter is here to talk about her new novel, Break in Case of Emergency. Joining me is my usual co-host, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hi, Seth. And Tom... Wait a minute. Wait, what? What? Where? Lori, that chair's empty. What the? Where's Tom? I, I, I'm not sure. I think he's in Transnistria. You know, I've been reading his book, Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World, and uh-huh. I'm going to do a shameless plug for my cool. friend Tom Lutz. It is a superb piece of travel writing. I am vicariously going all over the world with Tom, and I think that is the reason he never returns my emails, I think, oh. is because he's, he's out of range. Feelings hurt? I think ultimately what I'm going to learn is he never left Los Angeles and he's just ignoring Wouldn't that be amazing if he never left and he was having some kind of second life? I really think that could be true. And all the copies of Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World get refiled under fiction. JT Leroy. Should we go to that interview we did with the author Jessica Winter? We definitely should. I think we should. Jessica Winter is an editor at Slate. Break in Case of Emergency is her first novel. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Break in Case of Emergency is a a wonderful workplace satire, many, many things, but particularly a wonderful workplace satire. And it's about an all-female workplace. And I'd like to start our talk by having you read the first sentence of the novel. The first section is called Our Focus is Focus Itself. And it begins, it's hard to reproduce those kinds of results if, oh, sorry, Jen said, realizing a beat too late that the rest of the room had gone quiet. What I loved about that sentence is that it encapsulates so much of the book in that Jen, the main character, is apologizing before the first paragraph (laughs) is over. And I'd like you to talk about that and uh, your decision to begin the book that way and how you work that theme through the piece. Well, there's there's something else buried in that sentence, too, in that she says reproduce, which is a lot of what the book is about. It's about trying to reproduce, whether it's in art or physically. <laughs> Jen is someone who lacks a strong sense of self, and she's something of a contextual personality Sometimes that can be an adaptive trait where you can work any room. You can adapt your personality and your presentation to wherever you are. That can be quite a charismatic trait. I think for her, she has a version of it that only works against her. She's constantly judging herself against other people. She's constantly, rather than adapting, she's kind of like twisting and mutating herself to suit different situations rather than being able to assess them and say, this is wrong or this is bad or I don't want to participate in this. And so I guess I was trying to boil down a lot of the themes of the book and a lot of the themes I was exploring in her personality in that one sentence. And also it's a female type that we recognize, the woman who apologizes all the time. Did you see that Amy Schumer sketch uh, where the women are doing a panel and they're all like nuclear physicists yes. and, they're, and all, all they do is apologize? That's great. And the moderator of the panel is a man who is quite the opposite, will not apologize for anything, even if he kills someone. Uh, (laughs) And I love that skit because I thought it made the point that 
there is something charming about how women are. I think there is something charming about being deferential and humble and that it's not all bad. And of course, your character, Jen, is quite lovable, although she has to come into herself by the end of the novel. She has to be comfortable with herself and confront people, which she's not that comfortable doing. I wanted Jen to feel like a friend. You know, we love our friends. We see the best in our friends. We feel incredible affection for our friends. But sometimes our friends drive us crazy. I wanted there to be parts of the book where you wanted to wring her neck because I wanted her to feel like a real person. And in terms of the always apologizing part of things, I think it can be charming, too. I think there's a kind of apologeticness about women being apologetic, that it's kind of meta in in a way, because it's not all bad. Like, having an awareness of the fact that you don't know everything and that you might be overstepping your bounds, you might be presumptuous in any given situation, is quite a good ability or trait to have as long as it doesn't completely overpower you. Mm -hmm. And I think with Jen, it just completely overpowers everything she says and does. And she's so unsure of herself that she feels as if she has to almost apologize for her very existence. Mm -hmm. And hopefully through the book, she takes some baby steps toward getting out of that mindset. One of the things that I really liked about the book was that you chose to set it in a nonprofit. And one generally doesn't see nonprofits as targets of satire, but of course, many nonprofits are wildly deserving of satirization. In fact, I have discovered that uh, the less that is at stake financially, the more crazy people will behave. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that your book showed. And further, not only is it a nonprofit, it's an all female workspace. So you're poking fun at all female workspaces, poking fun at nonprofits, and that, to me, was one of the most refreshing aspects of the book, because I assume you've got your woman's card from Hillary, and and I'm wondering if you're concerned that that might be revoked based on, <laughs> on what you've written. I spoke about this a little bit with um, Slate's L.V. Anderson, who writes our workplace column, and I, I do always want to tread very carefully. I set the book in an all-female workplace. I think partly as a prescriptive move. There's so many decisions that you have to make writing a novel that it's nice to just take some decisions away. And so one decision was, there will be no men here. No men. Goodbye. <laughs> but I think what that opens up is the question of, of some kind of learned female misogyny that might emerge in critiquing an all-female workplace or seeing how an all-female workplace could go totally wrong. I have no doubt whatsoever that there are many all-female workplaces out there that are feminist utopias. Uh, and <laughs> no, I'm this, sure. this book is not about them. <laughs> I, I worked for a magazine in the 1980s called New York Woman, which was run by Betsy Carter, and it truly was a utopia. I mean, it was so great, and it lasted five years, and it was over. And it was like, that's all it could last in this world, yeah. you know? But I also loved the combination of things that Seth was talking about just the regular organizational bullshit that goes on where you have meetings and nothing gets done and everyone just talks and tries to read how everyone else is thinking about what they're saying. You've got that. Then you've got the woman thing of being so caring and nurturing and pretending mm -hmm. to care, but being backstabbing as anyone else. Mm -hmm. And Karina, I think, is one of the great villains. I love that character, Karina. 
And then three, so you've got the workplace thing, the woman thing, and then you've got the rich people thing also, which is fantastic, which (laughs) is... So many things. Yeah. (laughs) Also, this would be a good time to tell the listeners what exactly is the foundation. So we're talking about the Leora Infinitus Foundation, also known as Le- Lift. L-I-F-T. I think it's pronounced Infinitus, is it not? No, I, that's how I that's how I read it to myself. <laughs> you can pronounce her name okay. however you want. Thank we're you. we're not even sure she knows how okay. her name is pronounced. And Leora Infinitus is a former sitcom actress who has married extremely well twice. She has reached middle age, and she's sort of looking for her life's next chapter. And she has decided that her life's next chapter, where she will spend all of her marital money, or at least a small portion of them, is in becoming a philanthropic innovator. That is her term of art. And so she starts this foundation that has clearly stated and yet impossibly vague missions around empowering women across the globe. She doesn't really know what she's doing. She hasn't hired people who seem to know what she's doing. And because there is this just essential uncertainty about what the mission of the organization is, no one really knows what to do, but no one wants to say out loud, I don't know what we're doing. What are we doing? Why are we here? Um, Jen tries to say that. Your heroine. Yes. My heroine tries to say that, and it does not work out very well for her. And so what you are left with due to this lack of mission that comes from the top and due to the very specific alchemy of the personalities in this workplace, you are left with what I believe my jacket copy called a passive-aggressive hellscape, which I think is accurate. (laughs) Um, It's just, you know, people sniping and griping and figuring out what to do with themselves all day and how to hoist themselves up on this social ladder of the workplace, but the ladder goes to nowhere. But it's also a gravy train. It's a job that has good perks and probably good salaries for the top women, Mm -hmm. and they just want to kind of ride it out as long as possible, but they're not doing anything. It's very funny. And they're very busy not doing anything. (laughs) Uh Yes. (laughs) The all-female workplace is such a fantastic cauldron of human behavior, and we're living in such a socio-politically fraught time. I read your book, which I liked very, very much. I thought it was hilarious. I thought the way you wrote about female relationships was just killer. And I thought, now, if I wrote this book, how would a woman react? What I'm asking is, how would you react if you read a similar book written by a guy? Oh, my goodness. Has no one asked you that? No. Can we get a bell sound effect, please, (laughs) Ernesto? Ding, ding. I was just talking this morning uh, with a friend about Freedom by Mm -hmm. Jonathan Franzen. We were talking about how, you know, if you slap a male or a female name on a novel, how differently it would be received. Should we get Jennifer Weiner into the conversation? (laughs) When Can we call her up? As long as we can have both of them, (laughs) both sides. And the first third of Freedom is very much a woman's novel. And I'm putting like three sets of scare quotes around that. But what we think of as a woman's novel It's about a frustrated housewife who's trying to improve her neighborhood and her relationships with her neighbors and her children. And she's thinking back on her youth and how she was a jock when she was young and a sexual assault that she suffered. And if Johanna Franzen had written that lovely first third of Freedom, I think on one hand, she would not have been on the cover of Time 
And I used to work at Time. I love Time. That's not a knock on Time, but she wouldn't have been on the cover of Time. But on the other hand, I think some of the criticisms of freedom, of the Patty character, Johanna Franzen wouldn't have been in for them because Johanna Franzen would be a woman. So I do think that these questions shape how we see what we read. That said, I think a guy who wrote a critical, created a critical portrait of an all-female workplace, I would hold him, I think, to a different standard than a woman because... Oh, God. I'm walking into such a minefield. You should never say that you can only write your own experience. Like, obviously, literature would be so boring if you only wrote your own experience. But I have to go away and think about this. I'm not sure. Well, it's such a tricky thing because as a novelist, you want to own the world. And, (laughs) and, And isn't the key to being a novelist the skill of having empathy? Absolutely. I mean, Ruman Alam just published Rich and Pretty, which is a wonderfully nuanced, just really a beautiful portrait of female friendship that I treasure. So maybe I'm disproving my point. Maybe men and women should write about whatever they want. (laughs) But you're you're talking about empathy, but the book is kind of scathing. And in a way, it's safer for a woman to do it because, well, A, no one can say you don't know what you're talking about. And B, Mm. nobody can say you're misogynistic. I mean, they can. You could say, I guess you're a self-hating woman or something, but that would be absurd. Uh, in this no, there are people on Goodreads who say I'm a self-hating woman. Do you read your reviews? I do. They can be so annoying. I find them interesting. There was one Goodreads review where I just like, oh, and I, I actually left a comment on the <laughs> user's profile. Just like, I'm really sorry I let you down so horribly. <laughs> I think it's good to call people out. You know, I wasn't trying them. to call her out. I honestly, she was so angry and she thought the book was so misogynist uh-huh. that I felt moved, rightly or wrongly, to say, I'm sorry. Well, that's the thing with satire. It's not gentle, generally. The book is really done remarkably deftly, but it's brutal. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hilarious, but brutal, really. Well, the passive-aggressive opera that it is is just yeah. perfectly rendered, hilarious, and if you're going to be PC about it, it's offensive, I guess. Not to but, me. But there is, a, there is emotion in it as well. Well, first of all, I was going to say, in terms of brutal, the fight that uh, Jen has with her husband when they have their big fight walking home past the Death Deli <laughs> in Not Ditmas Park, it's a real marital fight. You know, it's it's everything that you shouldn't say, but you can't help yourself, and you have to say it. And it's like, if the marriage survives this fight, then it'll probably make it. Like, this is the first balls-out fight that this couple is probably having where you say everything that you have thought in your darkest, least generous mood about the other person. Well, the marriage might make it, or it's the mortal wound that doesn't bleed out until years later, or it's one of several blows that collectively... Like, I, I wanted to leave a lot in the book ambiguous. I wanted to leave a lot of blank space for the reader to decide what they thought was going to happen. Uh A lot of the stuff toward the end of the book, I wanted the reader to decide, was this a good resolution or not? Is this a happy ending or not? And actually, my friend Katie Arnold Ratliff, who read an early draft of the book, she thought that the first version of the marital fight was too much. And so I pulled it back a little bit from the final version. It was pretty rough in the version you published. 
something else happened, and I'm I'm really glad in retrospect that I took it out because people have reacted so strongly to it, and I actually thought I had watered it down. In terms of the workplace stuff being brutal, I agree that it's brutal, but... Hilariously brutal. (laughs) One thing that I read when I was very early on writing the book, really, it didn't inspire the narrative of the book, but it felt kind of galvanizing to me. It was a letter to Dear Prudence, Slate's advice columnist. Uh, This was back when Emily Yaffe was doing Dear Prudence. And it was a woman who, she had had a, a miscarriage, and now her boss's wife was pregnant. And her boss and his wife were saying just terrible things to her about things that she had done, decisions that she had made that had influenced her losing her pregnancy, and that they wouldn't make the same decisions. It was just awful and Emily Offie's advice was wise and true and good. And, and she just said, you know, just as a PS, this is a reminder, never, ever, ever tell people pregnant unless you absolutely have to keep it to yourself. And the letter writer followed up and said, I didn't tell anybody. My boss figured it out because I had morning sickness and I had to go to the doctor from time to time. And this letter was so heartbreaking to me, but it also told me that some of the stuff that I was writing about, about how people's minds and bodies just are not respected in all kinds of different workplaces, including ostensibly, like, cushy, white-collar workplaces. Like, that this stuff happens every single day, and some of it is about bad policy, and some of it is just about bad people. (laughs) But reading that letter, as says it was, it it made me think, I need to keep going, and I, I need to, like, not pull my punches because this is real. I'm glad to hear that you prescribed to the theory that what doesn't kill you will maim you uh, <laughs> until you crawl painfully to your death. Because I, I think that too sometimes. I'm not a terribly optimistic <laughs> person. You may have gotten this from the book. <laughs> this is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Let's go back and listen to the rest of our interview with Jessica Winter. Back to the fight with the husband. One of the other aspects of the book that I thought was very well rendered was, we should say Jen also is an artist, and her art career is not going particularly well when the book starts. And she's a friend named Pam, who's a successful artist, who she has helped, in fact. And you orchestrate a blow-up between Jen and Pam that's that's quite well rendered. You've got this passive-aggressive stuff going on at the office. You've got, uh, Jen has one always supportive friend called Meg, and then Pam, with whom she has this relationship that becomes fraught and then explodes. And I talk about this with my wife all the time. How do female friend relationships differ from male friend relationships, I guess, is what I'm asking. Because I... I've never had a male friend relationship <laughs> as a male, so I don't know. But you observe. You're married <laughs> to a male, and you see your husband's okay, relationships. Okay, I have the and, answer. They're deeper. Female relationships. Yes. They're certainly more complex. I think. I can only relay what my husband has told me. I'm putting all the rest of this in quotes. Like, this is not my own opinion. He has told me before that male relationships, they're more on the surface. They're not, like, sometimes when he gets together with his guy friends, I'm like, oh, are they they talking about me? I don't think they are. I think they're talking about soccer games and, like, what they watched on Netflix. And I am totally painting with a very broad brush here. And maybe this is just the way guys front so that the women in their life don't 
think that they're having the obscenely intimate conversations that women have with their female friends. Like, we really, really go there. But that is the impression that I have. I don't know. Am I right? You can tell me if I'm right. I think largely. Okay. I think for certain males, you want to, the whole goal is to get below the surface with other guys. But I think most guys, it's the bro kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, bros definitely rule. Mm-hmm. I think there are men who who uh, alas yes so true. I think there are men who are good at uh, the thing that women are kind of I think naturally good at. Most women, not all women, which is this need to like figure out why is that person the way they are? Why do they say that? You know what makes them tick? Why did they do that? You know that kind of stuff we love to figure out. And I think my husband is good at that, and I I think you are too. Thank you, good at that as well. But my I husband's really good at it too. Yeah. Right, and it's fun, but I don't think they take as much pleasure in it as mm-hmm. we do. I just, mm-hmm. I don't think they're like as driven as we are on these subjects. It's like he's content just to say, yes, that's true. That person does blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, no, but <laughs> the reason she does it. And he's like, just calm down, you know? One of my favorite relationships in the book was the relationship between Jen and Ka- yeah. Karina mm-hmm. that Laurie alluded to. And because, again, just a wonderful passive-aggressive Fantasia. And <laughs> I, I mentioned in the introduction that you're an editor at Slate. Why does no one use the word editrix anymore, by the way? I think editrix is a word that should not have been retired. But you're an editor at Slate. Okay, that's y- weird. No, okay. <laughs> editrix is a great <laughs> word. I'm sorry. So you're a manager. You have people who you're their boss, right? Yes. What kind of manager are you? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm really, really bad at remembering when people are taking vacation. That is one of my worst traits as a manager. Like, I'll be emailing someone like, hey, where are you? And like, they'll be on vacation. So that, that's something that's, Corino does. It is. No, it's it's really, I think it lacks empathy and consideration for other people not to like, oh, this is when Jane is going on vacation. That's going to be a lovely week for her. I'm excited for her to take that time. What else am I really bad at as a manager? I think I'm, I generally think, I hope, I hope I'm a good, supportive, nurturing, understanding manager. I really, really do. I want the people who work with me to feel supported and excited about coming to work. And I just want them to feel like I have their back even when they're on vacation. So that's my like mid-year resolution. Mm, that's yeah. a utopia. That's New York that's woman. My, that's my feminist utopia, remembering when people are going on vacation. <laughs> um, so I guess my ideal is to be a slightly standoffish mom like, I love you. I want what's best for you. I want to, I want you to do your best, but I'm also going to like give you some space. Like my, one of my greatest fears, I think, as a manager is being a micromanager. I just, I trust people to do what they say they're going to do and, and what their goals are for that day or week or month. And I want people to feel as though they have the right to be left alone. Sounds to me like you're perfect. Call up some people who uh, report to me. Oh, and I'm I will. Sure, I'm I will. sure they'll have... I, yeah. we're, we're doing that. We're definitely doing that. How, how long have you been at Slate? Three years. Was Plotz the editor when you were hired? Yes. By Plotz, I mean David, David Plotz, Plotz, for those of you who are not Slate uh, historians. And now so, Julia Turner is editor-in-chief. Which leads to my next question. You've worked in a workplace run by a guy, mm-hmm. and the same workplace now run by a woman. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? I'm not going to talk about the gender differences because they are two uh, complex and wonderful and amazing people who uh, like our worlds unto themselves. And I don't, I, I can't really boil it down to to gender. 
Slate is a fantastic place to work. I, I can't talk about Slate without talking like the Manchurian Candidate or something. It really is. I started writing this book right after I started at Slate, and that, that is not a coincidence. Like, only by having a day job where I felt so supportive and where I was surrounded by creative, collegial, wonderful people, and I was reporting to David and then Julia, who are just dream bosses. Like, that is the only way I had cognitive space to write a novel on the side. Were you this working? sounds like a hostage video. I'm sorry, but I really, it's it's really, I really mean it. I really, really mean it. Were you working full-time when you wrote the book? Yes. What was your schedule? <laughs> I wrote on weekends. I wrote in five-hour blocks on weekends. Did I you got, have a word goal? A daily word goal? No. No, because some days you're just kind of like pacing around, biting your thumbnail and like trying to figure out what order things should go in. And then some days you're just in a, total like flow state where you're just writing 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 so it was about the hours uh, more it was than about words. yes yeah this book is literary fiction it's beautifully written and why do you think it's so rare to find literary fiction that's funny i don't think it's particularly rare i read a lot of funny literary fiction i think it's a little bit harder for funny literary fiction to get the respect maybe that it fully deserves and maybe some of the commercial success that it fully deserves. And I don't really know why that is. I, th- I think a publishing industry vet could probably explain that. But I, I find myself laughing a lot at a lot of the things I read. I think all great books are howlingly funny. <laughs> do you? I do. War and Peace, howlingly funny? I do. I, some some okay. of it, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the book has been misapprehended, I think, on some level as chiclet, judging by some of the Amazon reviews. I think people were expecting that, and it's it's not that. And uh, I would love it if you would address that whole chiclet situation and what happens with female writers. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. When I was shopping the book around to agents and editors, I had this little speech prepared, which was my fear that I had for the book which was, I was afraid that it was going to fall into a crevasse between literary fiction and chiclet. I was afraid that people like myself and my friends and the people I feel like I'm writing for who enjoy literary fiction in all of its guises would apprehend this book as chiclet and say, oh, not for me. And I was afraid that on the other side, people who enjoy chiclet and are accustomed to and expect the pleasures and rewards that one receives from Chiclet would think that my book would give them those pleasures and rewards and read it and be quite disappointed. And even a sense of betrayal, which is what I've I've sensed from, from some of my... Like that good, reader good reads. on Goodreads. Yeah. And I don't know how I could have forestalled that kind of effect. I guess I could have written a different book that wasn't about and all female workplace and female friendships and infertility and all of these themes that apparently can only be <laughs> examined in a you know in a certain genre and not in in another very broad genre i mean the book is written in a my writing style is kind of weird <laughs> i think i get the impression that people think it's a little weird like, the sentences are long, and they're twisty, and they kind of, like, trip over themselves sometimes on purpose. And I don't think that most readers who enjoy Chiclet 
want necessarily to read a book that's written in the way that I write. And I don't know another way to write. It's just how it comes out. I don't think it's the sentence, the sentences or the sentence structure. I think it's the emotional angle of the book that is kind of anti-chiclet. It's not de facto empathy. I wanted to write a weird, prickly, messed up book. And I I wanted the reader, as I said earlier, I, I wanted the reader to possibly have an ambivalent reaction to certain things that happen and not necessarily know, was that a good thing or a bad thing? My agent, Claudia Ballard, I had already signed with her as my agent. But the moment I knew irrevocably that I had made the best decision I possibly could have made was we were meeting with an editor and she said, sometimes this book, reading it, it makes me uncomfortable. And she kind of made this flinching motion. And I was like, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. (laughs) And I completely understand that a lot of readers don't want that. They want something different from their reading experience. I love reading a book that freaks me out. I love reading a book that makes me uncomfortable and makes me question like who I am and what I think about things. And I, I think I was trying in my own small, very modest way to do that with this book. And this I, made me feel this book made me feel very, very comfortable, actually. <laughs> right? Didn't it make you? I just relaxed right into it. <laughs> Why was it set in two thousand and nine? It's set in two thousand and nine because two thousand and nine is it's such a strong memory of a year, of a self-contained year. We had just had the economic crisis. We had just had the, you know, liberal ecstasy of electing our great hope, Barack Obama. And I feel like basically two minutes after Barack Obama was inaugurated, we were like, oh, shoot, we are in a big mess. And how are we going to get out of it? And I lived in New York City at the time, as I do now. And I just remember... You know, a lot of people being out of work, a lot of my friends being out of work, a lot of people taking that moment as a pivot to say, am I going to go to law school? Am I going to change careers? What do I do? Am I leaving the city? It was a moment of great uncertainty for so, so, so many different people in so many walks of life. It was also so cold. I just remember that winter, just never wanting to go outside and, and feeling like a certain degree of cabin fever just because it was cold out there literally and figuratively. And I think that's where I started with it. It, it also highlights all of the money issues that yes. are going on with, mm-hmm. with the characters. But speaking of transitional moments, uh, <laughs> let's talk about what's happening right now because I cannot stay away from the news for more than an hour. I'm just, I feel like that Chinese curse, you know, May you not live in interesting times. May you live in interesting times. May you live in interesting times. It's a curse. Uh, I feel like we are living in interesting times right at this moment. And it's, everything seems to be changing so fast. Are you feeling that? I am feeling as if 2016 is the most news-packed and in some ways the most awful year I can remember, whether it's world events or Baton Rouge or Minnesota or... Dallas or the fact that somewhere on the order of close to half the American electorate is prepared to vote for like a quasi fascist xenophobic isolationist. I mean, it just and I I was I was just talking about this with with a friend. I 
don't, and I want to knock on like all available surfaces, I don't think Donald Trump is going to get elected. I think Hillary Clinton is going to get elected in a landslide. What I am worried about right now in terms of our domestic politics is that somewhere out there, there is a smart, young, canny, savvy, right-wing would-be politician or a Lee Atwater type or what have you who is sitting on the sidelines taking notes on how a Donald Trump-like campaign could have been run in a smart, savvy way that was not driven by id, that was driven by the will to win and to develop a ground game and to develop down-ticket compatriots and how to win this as opposed to just, you know, winning constant news cycles with just sheer amount of eyeballs on Donald Trump. But wasn't that the campaign of George W. Bush? You know, hasn't that already been done in an organized way with... You know, I, I think there's something about the lack of, of finesse and polish in this campaign that lays bare how completely bereft of ideas that party has been for a long time. And I think that, you know, maybe it's even in some way a good thing. I mean, as you say, he may very well lose by a landslide, but all you have to do is study how Hitler came to power. I mean, you could study that in lots of ways. I think that it's possible that we could have a candidate who somehow figures out a way to tap into the worst of us and not just the worst of the, you know, the resentful white male electorate, that he can tap into other demographics and grow his support in a way that Donald Trump... Donald Trump can intensify his support, but he just simply cannot broaden it Mm -hmm. because the intensity of his support is grounded so deeply in resentment of every other group that could possibly vote for him. I don't know how someone would would broaden that. I don't know what they would pick and choose from that menu of options to make that happen. But 2020 frightens me in a way that 2016 does not. Mm -hmm. I think what mitigates what you're worried about is... Trump's, and I use this word in quotes, his authenticity. I think that's one of the things that makes him really popular. And somebody who has the qualities that you're talking about, caginess and a high intellect wrapped up in a demagogic presentation, unless that authenticity is there, it's very hard for an individual like that who is calculating like that to resonate to the degree that Trump is resonating. Do you see what I'm saying? It's almost the opposite. And that's why George W. Bush was such an effective politician, because, you know, George W. Bush, I don't think he was a puppet, but he certainly had an infrastructure of smart, savvy, Machiavellian figures around him. And he could be the front man for that band. It wasn't, you know, so much a puppet. And yeah, I don't think he was a puppet. I think he he was was a vacuum. Yeah. And that needed to be filled Mm -hmm. and that anyone around him would could fill with mm. the most power. Although compared to Trump, Bush was Pericles. Well, wasn't he? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think Bush, as awful, as catastrophic a president as he was, there was a colonel, however inaccessible at times, and it pains me to say this, of decency in him. Not all the time. Once in a while, the guy could be decent. I don't think Donald Trump could be decent if you built a hundred-story building in honor of his potential for decency. I just don't think he has it. And maybe someone who could run the successful version of his white nativist campaign wouldn't have it either, and that would doom them to to Mm -hmm. failure. Now, what about a figure like Ivanka? 
oh, I could talk about Ivanka all day. Why well, don't you? As a novelist, I mean, she's such an interesting character. Fascinating character. Talk about, <laughs> tell us about it. Your thoughts I mean, about her. She she is so poised. She's so eloquent. She is a smart cookie. There's there's no way that she's she's not. And I think for a certain amount of time, we could write off her participation in the campaign as just daughterly loyalty. But I, I think at a certain point, as his campaign gained steam, she became really maddeningly complicit in what he was doing. And kind of someone on Twitter was comparing her to deodorant. Donald Trump just like takes like a a bath or something and ends up smelling just a little bit sweeter every time Ivanka opens her mouth. That's kind of a gross analogy, but we are talking about Donald Trump, so I guess gross is appropriate. My fascination with her, which dates back to Celebrity Apprentice. Did you guys watch Celebrity Apprentice? Ivanka was amazing on Celebrity (laughs) Apprentice. Oh my God. Just a fabulous reality television character. I think her ability to be poised and regal and above it all without seeming snooty is maybe one of the most magic things about her. And I think that's why it makes her such an effective surrogate. But she has blood on her hands at this point, I think. She has blood on her $140 Ivanka Trump (laughs) collection powder pink. It's uh, a good price point. You know, you have to admit. I actually like her stuff. I would own Ivanka Trump merchandise if she were campaigning for Hillary Clinton. But what a a remarkable metaphor of where we are as a country, though. The morning after she delivered that speech, she went on TV (laughs) to sell that dress. But she's, (laughs) she's, it it is a nice dress. It's modest. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's the interesting character because of the the moral complicity that you speak of, that that you don't realize how dirty your hands are going to get in the beginning. And we we talked about her husband on another radio show that we felt that way, too. Like, he Mm -hmm. had no idea that he was going to have to throw his relatives who died in the Holocaust under the bus. But those kind of moral issues are really what make literature so interesting. People not realizing the moral trap that they're they're getting into. No, she's becoming a, a character out of Shakespeare, which is very exciting as a political observer and as someone who writes fiction. Just so incredibly dispiriting. Speaking of Shakespeare, I did notice all of those King Lear references, <laughs> by the way, and I loved every one of them. Or the way he touched her hip after she delivered that speech. Perhaps she's more like Lady Macbeth. Well, there's there's a, there's a little King Lear in speaking and relating to your daughters inappropriately. Would you ever write about politics in fiction? I don't know. My next book engages in politics on a very personal, visceral level, not in terms of being on a campaign or something, but just in terms of how public policy affects people's intimate lives. I mean, there's a little tiny bit of that in this first book, but in my second book, it it really comes to the fore. Can you tell us any more of what it's about or what it's called? My agent and my husband know what it's about, and that's it. And that's really, and you're not going to tell us. <laughs> Can we call um, them? <laughs> uh, it's about the relationship between a mother and her two extremely different daughters, and that's that is my line. That's okay. <laughs> well, I look forward to it Thank for you. sure. As do I. All right. The new book is called "Break in Case of Emergency." Jessica Winter, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This is so much really fun. Fun. Thank you. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. Our crack production assistant is Ernesto Orleano. Mary Alexa Kavanaugh is the czar of scheduling. 
Thanks to associate producer Jim Lane. Thanks to Jessica Winter. We record this show at Emerson College every week, and our thanks to them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. And if you're so inclined when you're downloading, go to iTunes and give us a rating. It helps draw attention to the show and means we'll be around longer. How many stars should they give us? I think as many as are available. Okay, so like 30? 30 would be good. Okay. However many they can uh, conjure up. Absolutely. For Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week.